What a privilege and honor it really is to be able to come together to worship God in spirit and in truth and to form the body of Christ in this place. It's always a privilege. It is always an honor and something that we take for granted. As mentioned in the prayer, we take a lot of things for granted. Uh, we really do. But it is a privilege and honor that we are able to form the body of Christ here. And we are all members of that body. And what a blessing it is. The lesson for this evening uh, is an outgrowth from dealing with a situation we had at home several years ago and not wanting to deal with it alone, uh, making it too obvious that we were having to deal with a problem, I put together some things that Three basic points, and I call the sermon Culture, Customs, or Commands. And we want to look at this. This really is an important topic, and I'm not going to be able to go deep into each of these, but I hope to go enough into them that uh, as we go along that you will feel confident to uh, maybe answer somebody that asks you about uh, some of the things that we'll talk about. First of all, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 22. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 19 through 22. Paul tells us, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews, and to those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law, to those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak, I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. I think here we, we find several things that are very useful for our life. Uh, one is to, to try to reach people that maybe aren't exactly like us. And we try to reach out to them. We try to uh, understand each other. We want the gospel. Paul says, I do all of this adapting that by any means I might win somebody to Christ. Might reach somebody. It's not a matter of trying to look like somebody. It's not a matter of just trying to imitate, but to gain a soul. And But he does talk about adapting. And so in that realm, Sometimes there are things in the scriptures that we would call cultural and there are things in the scriptures that were simply the customs, but there are also some things that are called commands and we need to be able to distinguish. It is undeniable that Christians have some liberties. Often disputes and contentions arise over what is or is not one of them. We cannot settle such things by feelings or emotional appeals. And when it comes to my liberty and 
you don't think so, uh, emotions get involved and go very highly, as they do in things that I'll be talking about here in a little bit. Jesus said we can know the truth. I think one of the parts of the good news, the best news, we can know the truth. We can know the truth. Mark, uh, Mark, John 8, 31 and 32. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, key to it. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. By carefully studying the word, we must determine whether a thing is a command, example, or an implication. If it is, then it is binding, no matter how anyone feels about it. You see, truth is not up to how I feel about it. But there are some things that are. And even in this, if it is not one of those, if it's not a binding matter, then it may be a liberty. And love must prescribe the decision we make. Now, God defined love in 1 Corinthians 13, Verses 4 through 7, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Paul demonstrated godly love in regard to liberties. In Romans 14 and 15, he wrote, Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. What a different attitude than what we have uh, often uh, in this day and age at least. Verse 21, Romans 14. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. 1 Corinthians 8, 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. I, I think with these, we'll look at one more, but I think we see Paul wanted to save people. He didn't want to do anything that might cause somebody to be weaker or even possibly lost. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 33. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. The scriptures mention some things that were cultural, localized, some things that were customary, common practices, and of course some things that are commands. Some fail to make any distinction some form incorrect conclusions. And we want to look at three things as examples that sometimes come up. First one we want to look at 
is foot washing. Foot washing. Because every now and then, uh, lately, I've seen it on Facebook, uh, where that it's considered or claimed to be a way of life of the New Testament church that we don't do. And the point that this brother is making is that we really can't follow the New Testament pattern, and nobody is. And that's why he tries to uh, use this as an example. So let's, let's just look at it. It's found in John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, we'll begin at verse 1. We'll read all the way through verse 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come uh, from God and was going to God, rose from the supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. And therefore he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So we find in here, and it sounds like commands, doesn't it? If then your Lord, your teacher, has washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Key verses to understand this passage are verse 7, where it says, Jesus answered and said to him, what I, am going, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And verse 12, so when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? Now, they knew he washed their feet. How could he say, you don't know what I'm doing to you? Because washing feet wasn't the point. The point he's making is a command. He used foot washing 
to illustrate the point. Foot washing was something that uh, uh, they needed to learn. They needed to uh, learn the greatness of humble service. And Jesus told them that, but uh, in, in different time, at different times in different ways. And they struggled with it. Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be the it? But humble service, he says, is the key to greatness. In Matthew chapter 20, beginning at verse 20, reading through 28, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who are great exercise authority over them yet it shall not be so among you but whoever desires to become great among you let him be your servant and whoever desires to be first among you let him be your slave just as the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many in Romans 12 verse 10 be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. Verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus." The service was not a symbolic gesture, but something beneficial. Washing their feet was a needed thing. Jesus said, if you've been bathed, you're clean, except for your feet. They wore sandals. They walked nearly everywhere. Dirt roads, dirty and tired feet, foot washing would not fulfill a service today. Therefore, it is not the lesson. The lesson is serving. There are, I know of at least one denomination, I'm sure there are more, that practice, I think it's once a year, they have a foot washing. In fact, we were knocking doors many years ago and come across a family and we 
discussed this a little bit with them. And I, I don't want to trust my memory that much, but I believe they said that uh, they have this service and they may only wash one foot of the person, but it's a symbolic service thing. But I want to tell you something. Somebody comes wanting to wash my feet. There's no blessing for me on that. That's going to be a major frustration, aggravation, not blessing. That's going to be quite aggravating to me. And I would have to explain to you that's not the point. If it were, when he just got through, why did he ask, you know what I did? Well, yeah, they're still kind of damp. You know what I did? The master served you in something that was worthwhile, that actually was a blessing to you, not a bother. And so the lesson, I think, really, if you look at it, what he taught in service, we are to do. We're to serve one another. Washing each other's feet. If you really needed it, I'd do that for you. But as a symbolic religious service, and that wasn't his point. And we don't, we don't have to guess about it because he emphasized that wasn't his point. He says, you don't know what I'm doing right now. You will later. You'll get it later. And we believe, of course, that they did. Number two, the holy kiss. And I hate to say that this was the problem we had. Occasionally, thankfully not often, there'll be somebody that thinks we need to practice the holy kiss. Except they're not thinking much of a holy kiss. They just want to kiss. And they don't want to kiss everybody. They just want to kiss the girls or the women. And that's unfortunately... Some people then try to defend their bad actions and call it a holy kiss. We had a problem in our congregation with this. We had to deal with it, and I didn't want to just talk on that, so I used the other topic first, and then we got to this one. But uh, this person's wife come in one Sunday morning, came over to me and think not many people have to tiptoe. <laughs> Kissed me on the forehead and said, now that's a holy kiss. Well, it was a lot holier than the one that her husband was giving. So what does the, does the Bible say about the holy kiss? Should we be doing this? I mean, there are, and as this brother in Mexico has stated, we don't follow that even though it's a command. Romans 16, 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. 1 Corinthians 16 and 20, all the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 2 Corinthians 13, 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Thessalonians 5.26 
Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. 1 Peter 5, 14. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Questions come up regarding the holy kiss. Did Paul and Peter bind kiss greetings for all cultures? No, he did not. He did not. In fact, there's nothing said about how you do this kiss. And if it were actually a command, we would be instructed as to how this was to be done. Moses Lard, I believe is correct in his commentary, when he says the apostle by his injunction did not create the custom for it was prevalent at the time. He meant merely to purify it. He hence says, greet one another with a holy kiss, only therefore where the custom exists is his injunction applicable. Where the custom does not exist, his injunction is not designed to create it. He hence does not bind it, not bind it upon us. If we do kiss, it must be a holy kiss, but we are not compelled to kiss. Vine says, there was to be an absence of formality and hypocrisy, a freedom from prejudice arising from social distinctions, from discrimination against the poor, from partiality towards the well-to-do, and the churches, masters, and servants would thus salute one another without any attitude of condescension on the part of or disrespect on the other. The kiss took place between persons of the same sex. If universally binding, which Bible example do we follow for administering the kiss? The New Testament gives the following examples. Luke 15 and verse 20. And he arose and came to his father, and when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Acts 20, 37, then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. Luke 7, 38, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. A study on manners and customs of Bible lands says kissing guests in holy land homes expect to be kissed as they enter. When entertained by a Pharisee, Jesus commented on his reception by saying to him, Thou gavest me no kiss. The difference between the Oriental and the Occidental way of greeting each other is made clear by one who lived in Palestine many years. Here men shake hands when they meet and greet, but in Palestine, Instead of doing this, they place their right hand on their friend's left shoulder and kiss his right cheek. Then reversing the action, place their left hand on his right shoulder and kiss his left cheek. Manners and Customs of Bible Lands, page 74. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says, There is reason to believe that as a rule, men only greeted men and women, women. The early so-called fathers said, Then let the men give the men and the women give the women 
the Lord's kiss. But let no one do it with deceit as Judas betrayed the Lord with a kiss. In a study on the holy kiss, Mike Scott from scripturesay.com says, the kiss is common in Eastern lands in salutation, etc., on the cheek, the forehead, the beard, the hands, the feet, but not the lips. In the Bible, there is no sure instance of the kiss in ordinary salutation. My experience in Mexico, in Argentina, in Spain, and I may get mixed up on which was which between Argentina and Spain, but in Mexico, very seldom do the men kiss the men. Uh, they generally, we, uh, what we'll do is we will shake hands, then we hug, and then we shake hands again. That's just a tradition. And when I'm in Mexico, that's what I do. But the people who know the sisters there very well will shake their hand and give a light kiss off the side of the cheek. Frankly, my experience has been what I call air kisses. Kiss kind of beside the cheek. Very, very seldom do you ever feel like there's lips touching your cheek. In Argentina or Spain, if I've got them backwards, the custom is as you greet, you kiss left and then the right, and then you go and you do that to everybody, the men to the men. The women, possibly sometimes. I remember after one of these trips, it was one of the places, Spain or Argentina, you just kiss the one time, kind of like to the air, you know, like the cheeks here, you kind of, and you hear it, so you know you got technically by, and you made the greeting. And so you're fine. But then we went to this other place, whichever one was first, and it was... And I told Cynthia, I've been kissed by enough men to last me the rest of my life. I didn't tell them that. We followed their example. But I want to tell you something. That's not what we do here. And it's important to understand that Peter and Paul were not initiating a command to greet by kissing. They were controlling that practice that existed. Obviously, it was a practice they already had, but it needed to be regulated. It needed to be a holy kiss. Here we shake hands or hug. To kiss the side of the cheek, and especially when it's sort of like symbolic kissing, just a little kissy noise on the side, is holy. Kiss on the lips. A romantic kiss is not a greeting that God has enjoined upon us. We shake hands, but there's a difference in shaking hands and holding hands romantically. And I'm not saying like sometimes we get to talking and we're still shaking hands and, and warmly uh, hugging the hand virtually. 
I'm not talking about that. You know, if you've ever dated, you know the difference in, well, she shook my hand when we left. I think that's it. Or she was holding my hand and I, th I think there's some potential here. We know the difference. We know the difference. It has to be a holy handshake too. And if it's a hug, there's a difference in a hug and unchaste touching. And so they say in every instance, you greet with a holy kiss. If that's the greeting in that area, you do it with a holy kiss. If it's a handshake, you do it with a holy handshake. And uh, then we get to the third point that I want to talk about, and that is wearing a veil. Wearing a veil. Some have concluded that all Christian women must wear a veil during the worship service, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 5, but every woman who prays or prophesies and her head, uh, with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. If this were the teaching, and I call on, call on uh, personal experience from a long, long time ago. But if this were the teaching, a scarf, a hat, a few feathers stuck in a hairnet, I've seen some, but that's all I could call it. it was, they had a, had some, called it a hat because they felt like they had to have that artificial covering and basically is just a hairnet with some feathers in it and it was not even a full hairnet. Well, that wouldn't do it. If a veil is commanded, it's going to have to be a veil and not some kind of scarf deal. Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 1. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Chapter 6, verse 7. Like a piece of pomegranate are your temples behind your veil. If this verse were teaching that a woman must wear the veil, it would be necessary not only at worship, as nearly always is all that is practiced. What does it say? Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. That's not, worship is not the only time a woman is to pray. And anytime she's praying, she must have her covering. In 1 Corinthians 14, verses 33 through 35, you know the verse. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but it, uh, they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in the church. Now, if she's praying or prophesying, she must be covered. That's not church only. 
You remember scriptures that applied to all of us, like praying without ceasing? That men ought everywhere to pray? What is the teaching? She must be veiled, covered every time she prays. 1 Corinthians 11, 5, 1 Corinthians 11 and 3, it tells us that judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? God gave her something instead of a veil. And people want to argue about this. And if you, sometime if you, maybe you already have had, you can do a study in the Greek on these terms. There are different, different verbs. There is a verb used for let her be covered, a verb without naming the corresponding noun, the veil. Verse 15 tells us what the veil is. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. She's to be covered, and God chose the covering. And that covering is her hair. Now the word translated long hair really means to grow hair or keep on growing hair. Komao, to wear long hair as part of one's attire, to have long hair, to appear with long hair, to wear long ha hair. This is from Leonidas' lexicon. Uh, but farther down it says, in a number of languages, it may be necessary to translate Komao as to let one's hair grow long or not to cut one's hair. First Thessalonians says, pray without ceasing. A woman uh, who obeys this is able to pray at any moment. She has her covering with her constantly. Driving down the road, she thinks she needs to pray about something, she can pray about it. She's covered. Anywhere, anytime, she's covered. And that's what God gave her. But what about verse 16? You know, this is not the ones who want to wear the veil. This is the ones that don't want to wear the hair. Verse 16. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. The church is not to be quarrelsome. This is not what we do, Leonidas says, as far as that uh, statement. If anyone wants to argue against all that Paul has said, the apostles and the Lord's churches do not quarrel. No, we're not going to argue about this. We're not going to argue about it. You don't like it? You do what you want to. This is America. You can do what you want to. There are consequences, and me saying do what you want to do is not saying that you'll be all right when you do whatever you want to do, but I'm telling you, you can go ahead and do what you're going to do anyway, because obviously you don't really care what the Bible says about it, because God says her long hair or her uncut hair is given to her as a covering, and that's the only noun form of the covering in the passage. Is it really reasonable to think that the Holy Spirit would use 13 verses to reveal something and then use one verse to explain that it really didn't matter anyway.
Because that's what people would like for us to believe. Get to verse 16. But if anybody doesn't like this, just, uh, just forget it. It doesn't really matter. You know, that says something to me about the person thinking that way. Because in Matthew 12, verse 36, the Holy Spirit revealed through Jesus himself, saying, But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of in the day of judgment. If he spent 13 verses revealing something that really doesn't make any difference, that's idle talk. That's idle words. And the Holy Spirit did not do that. He wasn't filling up space. He wasn't trying to fill the scroll. He was giving commands. Was this only a cultural custom regulation? No, because the subject is divine authority. When she goes against this, she rejects God and his authority and his line of authority that he has set in place. Every place that God is the head of Christ, man is still head of the woman. 1 Corinthians 11 and 3, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. It's talking about authority. Every woman who accepts God's order of authority accepts the covering that he gave her to symbolize it. Verse 10 says, For this reason the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. A.T. Robertson says that it's the equivalent of saying having a sign of authority. Sign of authority is not in the text, okay? But he says it's, it's the uh, equivalent of saying it that way. Um, for what it is or isn't worth to you, uh, there's difficulty in translating sometimes because you come upon idioms. And idioms have a meaning all to their themselves. The independent words and their definitions don't tell you what an idiom means. Idioms we use all the time. We don't have to think about it. But have you ever heard somebody say, if you're ever in McAllister, be sure and look up Brother Randy. Now if you translate that into some other languages, literally, they're going to think I'm really tall. Because you said, look up, Brother Randy. He's like, why? Is he tall? But the meaning of each word doesn't add up. Like, find him or, or say hi to him. And so, idioms. Now, I'm saying that to say, why is it hard to translate for sure if she has authority on her head? For this reason, the woman ought to have authority on her head because of the angels. It's about authority and her being under authority. And I cannot say absolutely that this is an idiom, but I've talked to Greek professors and asked, and they said, I don't know what it means. 
Well, that makes me feel like it's an idiom. Because you can look at the words, that doesn't give you the whole. But if, in fact, it is an idiom, it could be she's to accept being under authority. Because she is under the authority of the man, and that would fit. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is giving for a covering. The cultural practice of a veil was not necessary even in the regions where veils were common. Every time a Christian woman sees a Muslim, think about this, sisters. Every time a Christian woman sees a Muslim, just as an example, attired in her veil, as they do, she should thank God for the glorious covering he chose to give her. God could have chosen one of those that I dare not try to pronounce what those things are called. You know what I'm talking about. You got these little peepholes. That's it. I remember in Israel seeing several, and that's about all you could see. And I remember being shocked because I saw a lot of makeup on some of the eyes of the girl, but, but she was fully veiled. And be thankful. God could have said, you do that. But he didn't. He gave you the long hair. We must search the scriptures in order to know the truth. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth uh, will set you free. In Acts 17 and 11, the Bereans were more noble than the those of Thessalonica. They received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. In the areas that God has given liberties, even when we know this is a liberty, love still has to rule. A liberty, nobody has the right to force their liberty on others. That's not what Paul said. Paul said, why destroy your brother for your liberty? The controlling factor is if you love them, you would rather, Paul says in Romans 14 and 15, yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. So if it is liberty, the controlling of liberties is never the right to do, but love will say, well, I don't believe there's anything wrong with it, but brother so-and-so does, and I'm not going to do that. That's love guiding Liberties. We had a brother there at McAllister that was adamant against saying the words, the Lord's Supper. It's not the Lord's Supper. It's not memorial. It's the communion. That's all he, would, he believed in. I tried to explain it to him. Whew. What a temper. <laughs> well, that wasn't going anywhere. I told him one time, I said, I've always said Lord's Supper and I may slip up and say Lord's Supper on occasion. I want you to know if I do, I'm not trying to rub you the wrong way. I simply let it slip because I'm going to do my best not to use that. After he died, we use it. We say Lord's Supper. 
But during that time, we didn't. And I think that that is what Paul is getting at on liberties. Be careful not to condemn yourself in what what you accept, he says in Romans 14. Be careful not to condemn yourself by the things you accept, not by the things you reject. And so if we don't want to destroy others, we're going to accept this love idea, and that's going to guide us through when we know it's liberties. And not force our way on anybody, and not even maybe be convinced that that really is a liberty. We may feel like it's wrong. But if the Scriptures do not really make it clear that it is wrong, and there is the possibility that it's a liberty, I didn't believe it was wrong to say Lord suffer, but I knew He did. And that meant it would violate His conscience and that He, it would make Him nearly physically ill. Well, maybe He used that just to manipulate us and control us or however else you might want to look at like people do about people saying that they've got that's their liberty and they're going to they're going to uh, take advantage of their liberty and I don't care what you say. Paul says you're not walking in love. That's not walking in love. It's amazing, isn't it, how that love only applies to those who are uh, disagreeing with you that they're not being loving. They're not being loving. You should love me more than that. We are to love each other to the point that Paul says, if it offends my brother or makes him stumble or makes him weak, I will not eat any meat anymore the rest of my life. Now, I hope I never get in that situation. It's going to be a test. But that's the way I should feel about it too. Paul says, being imitators of me is also in my and your soul ought to be worth more to me than about a half a pound of brisket. That's the lesson for this. We never closed out extending the invitation. We don't know the hearts and minds of those here. Perhaps there are some here who have never obeyed the gospel who are uh, of the age of accountability, as we call it, or know that what you need to do. And we'd urge you to take care of that today. But if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then hear him when he says you have to repent or you'll perish. In Luke 13 and 3, hear him when he says confess me before men or I'll deny you before the Father, Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Hear him when he says you have to be born again, born of water and of the Spirit, to be baptized, to be baptized into his death, raised up to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 3 and 4, John 3, 3 and 5. If you've never done those things and you understand it, Now's the best time you have. Because this could be all you have. And we'd encourage you to take advantage of the time you have right now to take care of that command from God. If you are a Christian, if there's something between you and God, there's something between you and your eternal destination in heaven, to heaven, we encourage you to take care of that. You don't have to walk around with that weight on your shoulders. You can get rid of that just like that when you want to.
and you decide to repent of it. There ain't nothing worth going to hell for. Repent of it. Confess it to God. Through prayer, be forgiven.